something you envisioned, something that you planned that turned into a nightmare. Maybe it was a vacation. Maybe it was a, a trip that you had all of this dream of how wonderful it was going to be and the, the trip was bad, the drive was horrible, or you got sick, or your plane was late, and then you got to the hotel and it wasn't what you expected, and it just didn't turn out like you had planned. Maybe it was a, a family event. I think uh, moms usually have these great envisioned dreams of holiday events. They picture the family gathered around the table and everybody nice and loving each other and kind. And uh, then at the end of that holiday, they're really not happy because none of that turned out that way. Those dreams really turned to nightmares. Dreams that, that we had hoped, that we had placed our, our hope and, and trust in that didn't turn out the way we went. As I mentioned earlier, before I went on vacation, we were talking about dreams. We were talking about visions, and we were talking about them in the context of our sermon series, but we were talking about them as how they relate to how God challenges each of us and a church to learn to get from where we are to where God is calling us to. We mentioned that Paul told the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, That we are all God's workmanship, His hands and His feet. And we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What does that mean? That means that everyone in this room, if you are a Christ follower, God has a purpose for your life. He created His purpose for you before you were ever born. Well, then how are we supposed to learn that purpose? We learn it by His Word and His Holy Spirit, but He also plants dreams and visions inside of us. Those dreams of what He thinks we can do and we should do and we must do. And as we begin to dream as individuals, those visions and dreams become a reality as we pursue God in obedience. And as a church, it is the dreams and visions that God places in His people that leads us to where He wants us to go. It's His vision and His dream that becomes who we are as a church body. And to help us understand that, I told you a couple of weeks ago, we took a little detour and went back to the book of Nehemiah. We looked at Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is a wonderful story in the Old Testament that paints a picture of how a dream is birthed all the way to how it becomes a reality and all of the process that goes on as that dream is coming to reality. And there are so many great lessons to learn from the book of Nehemiah. So but we're really just kind of sketching over it, just kind of glancing over the book of Nehemiah. And as I went on vacation, I had the next couple of weeks planned out. And I had planned on talking about Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning and, and what it means to come together and see God's dream fulfilled. But much like what happens sometimes when I am praying and seeking God, that God puts something else in my heart. God began to lead me to begin to think about this idea of a God-given dream becoming a nightmare. Is that even possible? Can something that God births in us for His purposes, for joy, for peace, for future, for for our direction, can that thing become drudgery? Can it steal our joy? Can it cause us pain? Can it cause us suffering? And so I began to wrestle with that, and I began to go back and examine how in all of our lives, as we follow God's dream, as we follow His vision for us, and even as churches, Many times, those dreams and those visions can become nightmares. And I began to examine how that happens, and I began to look at Nehemiah, and and what drew me to this idea was a comment that I heard on vacation. 
While we were talking, several of our friends that were on vacation with us, and one of them was talking about the recent suicides of several celebrities. And they made the comment, they said, it's so sad because they seem to have achieved everything they ever dreamed of, and yet that didn't seem to be enough. Now, I'm not making a statement on those people because I don't know their circumstances or situation. And we've talked many times about the importance of mental health and the importance of of dealing with depression and how to deal with depression. And we've talked about creating an atmosphere in the church and we've got to create an atmosphere of any place. It needs to be in the church where people who are struggling with those kind of issues can have a place to be open and share and get healing and get help. But that statement is what drew me to it, not the cause, the statement. A God-given dream becoming a nightmare. And as I looked at the book of Nehemiah, I began to realize that there were several times in that book, in that story, that if Nehemiah hadn't been paying attention, if he hadn't been aware, if the Holy Spirit hadn't been working in his heart, those dreams that God placed in his heart could have very easily become a nightmare. And the more I thought about it, it became a reality because I could see it in my own life. I saw in in my life where many of my dreams or visions turned into nightmares, in my ministry and in in friends' lives. I've got pastor friends and ministry friends, and I've seen it in some of your lives. I've seen it in the lives of churches. And it became a reality, and it becomes a reality. So this morning, what I want to do for just a few minutes is to give you a word of warning. We've been talking about dreams. We've been talking about visions. But I want to give you a word of warning because some of you are just discovering your God-given dream. Some of you are in the process. You're following God in obedience and God is opening doors and things are really starting to happen. Some of you have already seen God answer prayer and and some big things have happened in your life. Many of you, you've seen God answer prayers and, and you've seen visions fulfilled and dreams come true. And you're on the other side of it. But this is a word of warning for all of us, no matter where you are in that process. Because if we are not careful as Christians, if we are not careful as a church... Those things that God puts in our hearts to propel us forward can very easily become nightmares. Can very easily turn what is supposed to be joy into work, into drudgery. And so I want to point some things out to you from the book of Nehemiah, but to be able to do that, I'm I'm just going to kind of scan over it. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Nehemiah, and you don't have to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, and I told you Nehemiah is uh, in front of the book of Psalms. You go back from Psalms and Job and Ruth, and there you'll find Nehemiah. Uh, So I'm going to just scan over it and give you the story, then I'm going to go back and point some things out to you. And I'm not going to read until we get to chapter 5. And so some of this will be review for some of you. Nehemiah, the setting of Nehemiah is at the end of the Old Testament period. Nehemiah takes place about 170 years after the Jerusalem city had been destroyed. The Babylonian kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar had come into the southern two tribes of Judah and destroyed Jerusalem. They tore the wall down. They tore the temple down. They stole all of the temple relics. They, they took the people, the Israelites, hostage back to Babylon. That was 170 years before the, book of before the book of Nehemiah comes around. And then about 70 years after they'd been in captivity, the Babylonians had been defeated, the Persians had come in, the new Persian king, Cyrus the Great, allowed the Israelites, after 70 years in captivity, to go back to Jerusalem. So 100 years before Nehemiah is written, a group of people go back to Jerusalem for the first time under Zerubbabel. 
And then about 12 years before the book of Nehemiah is written, a second group went back under Ezra. And Ezra went back with the intention to rebuild Solomon's temple, the place of worship. And so it's that setting where we find the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is living in the city of Susa, which is the capital city of the Persian Empire. And he is a cupbearer. He works in the courts of the king of Persia. The Persian Empire king, and his name is Artaxerxes. And he is probably at the time the most powerful king in the Middle East. And so that sets the stage for chapter 1. And I'm just going to kind of scan through, and you can follow along or you can listen. But I want you to hear some times as I share where Nehemiah's dream or vision could have gotten sidetracked. Now, Nehemiah chapter 1 starts off with Nehemiah's brother returning from Jerusalem. He comes back after a visit. Jerusalem is about 800 miles from Susa. So it's not an easy trip. It's a long, arduous trip, especially in those days. And he returns, and Nehemiah asks him, what's going on in Jerusalem? And he begins to share a horrible report. He says, the people are in poverty. They can't eat. They can't work. The other tribes that are around Jerusalem continue to come in and rob them and steal from them. There's no walls for protection. There's no politicians reaching out and trying to help. There, there is no leadership that's standing and uniting the people. And when Nehemiah heard this, even though he had never been to Jerusalem, he'd never seen it, he got heartbroken. His heart began to break and he, he begins to weep. He weeps because that is God's city. That is the representation of God's holiness. And it was in disrepair. 170 years, nothing had been done. And he begins to get broken. And Nehemiah chapter 1 tells us he begins to pray. And he begins to pour out his heart. And he begins to pray a very simple prayer. God, use me to make a difference. He didn't know what it looked like. He didn't know what he was supposed to do. God, use me to make a difference. And we learned as we studied Nehemiah chapter 1 that visions almost always come out of conviction or when our hearts are broken over a situation or a circumstance. When we begin to see the way things are, in, in light of the way things could be, in light of the way things should be, in light of the way things must be, all of a sudden a vision begins to get birthed. Most of the time when God births a vision in His people, it's because we see something that's not the way God wants it to be. And so Nehemiah begins to birth this vision. Use me, God. Nehemiah chapter 2 starts. Four months later, Nehemiah's been praying, and he's been planning. He comes up with a plan. I may not can do everything, but the one thing I can do is I can help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That will bring protection and, and help the people and maybe help unite the people. So he begins to pray, and he begins to plan, and he's working every day in the court of Artaxerxes. And four months after his original report, he is serving a drink. He's a cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire. And the king of the Persian Empire looks at him and says, something's wrong with you. You seem to be upset. And this was the perfect opportunity. That was God opening a door. That was God creating an opportunity. So Nehemiah quickly prays, God, let me overcome my fear and speak my heart. And Nehemiah, before the most powerful man in the world, says, this is what's on my heart. Jerusalem is in disrepair. My people, God's chosen people, are hungry. They're they're in need. They're being attacked. And incredibly, the way God operates, the most powerful man in the world looked at Nehemiah and says, why don't you do something? And Nehemiah says, I will. And all of a sudden, God takes a vision that was birthed and begins to move it in the process through an open door. And the king doesn't just say, I'm going to send you. He says, I'm going to give you supplies. I'm going to give you everything that you'll need. I'm going to give you papers. I'm going to send an army with you for protection to get there safely. And so Nehemiah heads out to Jerusalem. 
And when he gets to Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he comes in secretly in chapter 2 and he goes and examines what the walls look like. The Bible says he was overwhelmed at seeing it. You see, it's one thing to have a vision and to begin to think about it and get excited for what God is calling you to do. It's another thing to see how much work it's going to take to become a reality, right? 170 years. 170 years ago, the Civil War hadn't happened. 170 years, the bricks had been laying in the dirt. And he gets there and he's excited. I'm going to build a wall and this is what God's opened a door and I can't wait. And he begins to see how big the task really was. And so he prays again, God, I don't know if I can do this. You've got to do it. And he stands before the people and he casts God's vision and says, this isn't me. This is from God. We have to build. And at the end of chapter 2, as he casts his vision, we see for the, the first time a group of three men. I call them the three stooges. When I preached on this, I preached a whole sermon on the three stooges because they are so representative of so many people, not just in the church, but people we know. Three guys, a guy by the name of Sanballat, who was from uh, uh, the northern tribes. He represented Samaria and the Samaria area. You know that the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans. It represented an area that surrounded Jerusalem. He was the governor of that area. The second guy was a guy by the name of Tobiah. And Tobiah was the ruler of Ammon. And he represented the eastern area around Jerusalem. And then there was a third guy by the name of Geshem. And Geshem was from Arabia. And he represented the southern area. So these three governors surrounded Jerusalem. And when they heard Nehemiah say, I'm going to build a wall, they began to mock him. Why did they begin to mock him? Because they didn't want the wall built. They didn't want the people organized. They didn't want the people strong. They wanted the status quo. So they began to make fun of him. They began to criticize him. Nehemiah paid them no attention. Nehemiah chapter 3 shows how they begin to build the wall. And we're going to come back to it, so I won't spend a lot of time there. But Nehemiah's plan was very simple. Where do you live? This is my address. The wall in front of your house, you're responsible for that. Where do you live? This is my house. The wall in front of your house, you build it. Where do you work? The wall in front of your place. Everybody took personal responsibility. He didn't go around and say, we're going to start here. He said, everybody start building. And incredibly, they did. They started building. I took responsibility for the wall that was in front of me. And I began to build. And I began to work. And my family began to work. And the wall began to come up. And when the wall began to come up, all of a sudden, the three stooges in chapter 4 began to see that this wasn't just an idea. It just wasn't a dream. It was going to happen. They moved from ridicule and mocking to beginning to threaten them. They began to say, we're going to send an army. You're not building this wall. You're not going to reunite these people. We have control over this area. And they begin to threaten Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the first thing he does is pray. God, I'm going to give these people over to you. And he turns them over to, to God. And then he gets all the people together and says, here's our plan. I want you to have your hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. And so that we can be ready. We're not going to get caught off guard. When they come with an attack, we're going to be prepared for it. And eventually, he says, we're going to split the group. Half of you are going to be working. Half of you are going to be standing behind them, having their back with a sword, making sure nobody comes. And so the wall begins to get built. And then in chapter 5, there's this strange occurrence. Midway through the wall getting built, all of a sudden some of the poor people that lived in the town of Jerusalem came to Nehemiah with some complaints. Could have been a wonderful distraction. Could have been something that sidetracked his whole ministry, his whole vision. But he heard their complaints. And you see what had been happening is, like many times when there's no leadership, the poor were getting poorer and the richer were getting richer. Because the richer were preying on the poor. They were going to the poor and asking them to help pay taxes. And when the poor couldn't do it, they were putting them, giving them money, and they would give them money with high interest, and it was putting them in a deeper trap and a deeper trap. 
And when the people couldn't pay, the ones who were issuing the loans would say, we'll take your child as a bond servant or a bond slave instead. And so many of these poor people had lost their children to slavery, to their own children of God, to their own tribe, to their own people. So they went to Nehemiah and said, this is killing us. We're getting hungry. We don't have any food. Nehemiah said, I'm going to put a stop to it. He called all those that were loaning money and said, it's time to stop now. The Bible says that we're not to charge unnecessary interest. You're not to take advantage of those that are a part of your family. And they quit. And I want you to listen in Nehemiah chapter 5, how Nehemiah wraps that whole story up. And I'm going to read verse 14, but I really want you to hear verse 19. And you've got it in your order, so I want you to, to listen as I read. This is him wrapping up this poverty issue. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Arxes, when I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years... Neither I nor my brother ate the food allotted to the governor. He was placed in charge, but he said, I'm not going to put undue burdens on the people so that they have to pay taxes to feed me. He says, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any lands. Furthermore, 150 Jewish people and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. And each day, one ox, six sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine came in of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on the people. Remember me, this is him praying, Remember me with favor, O God, for I have done all of these things for these people. Now, what does that mean? It means that Nehemiah had a dream of building a wall, but midway through, this distraction comes up, and the distraction becomes an opportunity for him to do something bigger than he ever imagined, change people's lives. He never went with the intention of changing people's lives, but that became his motivation. It's so easy in this moment for that distraction to blow up and to become a nightmare. But instead, he channels it to allow it to become an outflow of his original dream. And it reaches people. And it touches people. And Nehemiah accomplishes some incredible things. But not without the ability to overcome some obstacles. And it's those obstacles I want to point out to you for just a few minutes. Because I want you to think about the obstacles you face every day in trying to do what God's calling you to do. The first one jumps out from the whole story. If you want to keep your God-given dream and vision from becoming a nightmare, you need to be aware of the opposition you're going to face. Now, that doesn't mean go look for opposition. It doesn't mean go chase opposition down. But it means to be aware that when you take a step of faith for God, when you believe God for anything in your life, you open yourself up to opposition. It amazes me that we have so many warnings in the Bible that if we ever try to live for Christ, if we ever try to be obedient, if we ever try to step out in faith, we are going to face criticism and ridicule and mocking and opposition. But yet when it happens to Christians, they are so shocked. We act so surprised when people are mean. We act so surprised when people come against us. We act surprised when bad things happen for standing up for what's right. Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, in fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. 
You're going to face persecution. If you are trying to be obedient and follow a dream and follow something that God has placed in your heart, people are going to come against you and they're going to start by criticizing you and by mocking you. And if that doesn't work, then it'll become direct opposition. I see it happen time and time again. And, and, and I'm not telling you to, to be scared of it. I'm telling you to be aware of it. Because it's going to happen. Because if you're not aware of it, that opposition can easily turn a God-given dream into a nightmare. Because what happens is, instead of allowing God to take care of that opposition, we try to take care of it. And all of our energy and all of our focus and all of our time goes into trying to answer criticism, trying to, to stand up for ourselves, trying to defend ourselves, instead of being obedient to God and the vision He's given us. Churches do it all the time. I can't tell you how many churches I've seen lose their, their power, lose their purpose, and lose their joy because they spend all their time arguing and fighting and trying to defend themselves instead of trying to do what God's called them to do. And it happens in our lives. What did Nehemiah do when he faced opposition? Well, the first thing he did was he prayed. And that should be a lesson no matter what's going on in your life. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen. Listen to who? God. The first reaction anytime you face opposition, when someone mocks you, when someone's critical of you, the first thing that you need to do, go to God and pray. Ask God to calm your heart. And the second thing he did was he gave them over to God. Now, you don't hear much of that anymore. He didn't, he didn't say, I'm going to go and ask them forgiveness. I'm going to go and try to explain why we're building the wall. It says in, in chapter 4 that he prayed and he said, God, you take care of them. Now, that's a dangerous place to be when somebody prays for God to take care of you. It is. But yet for us to be able to pray that prayer, we've got to take our hands off of them. And many times we say, God, you take care of them. And until I see you taking care of them, I'm going to take care of them. Right? Doesn't work that way. See, I learned a long time ago, you can either fight on your feet or fight on your knees. But you can't do both. And I can promise you, fighting on your knees wins every time. Nehemiah said, I'm going to, I'm going to give them over to God. God, you take care of these people. And then what did he do? He kept working. He said, I don't have time or energy to do this. I'm going to continue to focus on what God's called me to. One of the greatest dangers for a Christian that's trying to pursue a God-given vision is to allow opposition, to allow mocking, to allow criticism to sidetrack them from God's goal in their life. Aristotle says this, Criticism is something that can easily be avoided by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. I love what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, I will not answer my critics, for my enemies won't believe my answer and my friends don't need it. Not being prepared for opposition is one certain way to allow a dream to turn into a nightmare. The second way that a dream turns into a nightmare is when we confuse our dream or vision with our identity. When we confuse our dream or vision with our identity. You see, your identity is who you are. It's where you get your self-esteem. It's what you identify yourself as. And many times Christians get so focused on trying to follow their dream and follow their vision that they tie their identity along with that dream or vision. And what happens with that is a Christian, your identity is supposed to be in Christ. Not in a role, not in a responsibility, not in a job, in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. He now lives in me. In the life that I now live, He lives through me. 
The Bible says in Colossians 3, 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. We step on dangerous ground whenever we allow anything except Jesus Christ to become our identity. Even good things like a God-given dream or vision. Because if our identity is not found in Christ, all of those other things that we identify ourselves by can disappear. And when they disappear, a dream turns into a nightmare. You say, I identify myself as a parent. And I do everything I can to be the best parent I can. And I've poured myself into being a good dad or a good mom. And and that's how I identify myself. Well, what happens when the kids move away? That's why so many marriages fail when kids move away. Because the parents have spent all their time identifying themselves as a good mom or a good dad. And all of their energy has gone into that. And that's not a bad thing. But then when the kids move away, they all of a sudden lose their identity. I'm not making meals anymore. I'm not waiting in the car line. I'm not driving them from practice to practice to practice. Where is my identity? We we pour all of ourselves and our identity into being a good spouse. And that's a good thing. But when we identify alone as being that person, then it can lead to nightmares. You say, I want to be the best husband I can be. And that's a great and admirable thing to pursue. But when we identify ourselves as a husband and a husband alone, what happens when your spouse goes or the marriage falls apart? Your identity disappears. Your job. Some of you identify yourself through your job. I'm the best salesperson, the best teacher. I want to be the best. And and you identify and you pour all your time and energy and effort into doing that. And those things are good. But then all of a sudden your identity and your self-esteem and your self-worth gets tied into that. Instead of Jesus Christ. And when that job is over, you don't know what to do. Jesus tells us that we are to call ourselves Christians because we identify in Him. And when everything else fails, when everything else falls, Jesus will always be around. And when I identify myself in Him as His child, His beloved, then I am secure and I am sufficient and I am content. Anything else will lead to disaster. It's very easy for Nehemiah to identify himself as the wall builder. That's why he went. That's why he was going. But what happened along the way is he began to recognize that he wasn't just a wall builder. He was an instrument of God. And that instrument of God allowed him to expand his vision. Some of you are limiting yourself because you've identified yourself as only one person or only one role or only one responsibility. When we allow anything else to become our identity, we are in danger. You are secure and sufficient in Christ, regardless of your job, regardless of your role, regardless of your responsibility, and that never changes. When people ask me who I am, I'm a pastor, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a friend. I have some incredible dreams and visions, but all of those things can disappear like that. Who am I? I am a Christian because in Christ, that will never change. And all of my worth is tied up in what He thinks about me. I'm secure in that. When we allow our dreams, our visions to become our identity, you step into a dangerous ground for a dream to become a nightmare. When you're not ready for opposition, when you confuse your identity with your dreams. And the third one, and this one I want you to really listen to because this one, it's hard for me to explain, but I feel like it's the main reason I'm preaching this message this morning. Especially if you're a creative person, I want you to hear this. 
One of the greatest ways, and, and this is one of the greatest ways I've seen churches and individuals have their dreams become a nightmare, is when we confuse a claim for affirmation. A claim for affirmation. Now that's tied with understanding our purpose and being content. Here's, let me explain it a little better. No one may ever know, hear, or see what God has called you to do. No one may ever recognize what God is calling you to do. Your vision, your dream, your ministry, your task. And that has to be okay. You see, what happens is we sometimes confuse the acclaim of the world for the affirmation of God. And when we do that, your dream can become a nightmare because the acclaim of the world can disappear in a heartbeat. You see, we begin to buy into the lie of the world that we are not a success unless we get recognized or unless somebody sees it or unless somebody uh, calls us to attention and, and gives us some kind of recognition. If we don't achieve that, then we are not being a success. But the reason God gives you a dream and a vision is very simple, for His glory and for you to be obedient. And if you're obedient and He's getting glory, whether anybody else sees it, that's enough. But for most of us, it's not. For most of us, we struggle. Because we confuse God saying, well done, with the world saying, well done. And when we confuse that, we fall into the trap that leads to a nightmare. We begin to think that if others don't see it, if we don't get a claim, if there's not big numbers, then it's not been a success. But success for the Christian has always been obedience, not recognition. So let me ask you, is that enough for you? Now, I'm not saying recognition and acclaim isn't nice. It doesn't make us feel good. But please don't confuse it with God's affirmation. What if God put a song in your heart, an incredible song that no one ever heard you sing? What if God birthed a poem, a painting, something creative out of you, but no one will ever see it? No one will ever read it. Is that enough for you? Is it enough for you to fulfill your purpose in God and to be obedient to what God is birthing in you? See, churches fall into the same trap. We we decide that if we don't have this many programs and we're not this big and if we don't get this recognition or get our name known or if our name's not in the paper, if people aren't talking about it, then we're not a success. Obedience is success. Whether anyone ever hears about us or knows who we are, as long as we're known in heaven, that's enough. See, so many people confuse a claim for affirmation. And listen, I I face it all the time. It's difficult. You pour your heart into something. You give your whole energy. All that you are, and, and you pour it, and no one ever sees it. No one ever hears it. I remember one Sunday... God, had, and I'm not exaggerating, to work on a sermon, you can put a sermon together in 15 minutes, but it sounds like a 15-minute sermon. If you really want to hear from the Lord, for me, it usually takes for a message between 30 and 40 hours for one sermon. Now, I'm not exaggerating, and, and it, it's, I'm not talking in a week. That's talking in a month. I, I'm working and praying and hearing from God, and so it's, an, it's, it's 
you know, I'm, I'm estimating. But I can remember one Sunday, I, man, God had put a word in my heart and he had burned in my heart. I, I mean, I was, I was in my office chomping at the bit to get in here to be able to share what God had put in my heart. I knew this was exactly what I was supposed to preach. And God had convicted me that people were going to be here to, to hear it and the right person would be here. And it was a rainy, nasty day. And I remember coming through these doors and there was about 25 people in here. I thought, God, this isn't a 25-people sermon. This is a 300 sermon. <laughs> right? Let's just be honest. God said, no, Rusty, it's a one-person sermon. You're preaching to me. And it doesn't matter who's out there. See, it's easy for all of us to fall into that trap. It's easy for all of us to begin to think that, that if it's not earth-shattering, if it's not recognized, if it's not huge, then it's not a success. God said, no, it's a success when you birth it and you live it out and you're obedient to what I've called you to. And when you hear those words, well done, that's enough. I've seen a lot of churches, a lot of Christians lose their passion, their purpose, and their fire because they confused a claim for affirmation. And then there's the last one, and this is the last thing I ended with in chapter 5. One of the dangers of seeing a dream become a nightmare is when we confuse opportunity for distraction. See, sometimes we can become so focused on what God is calling us to do that we miss all the other things that He's opening around us. It would have been real easy. Nehemiah is focused on the wall when those people came to him to say, listen, can you wait and let's do this after the walls? But that wasn't the way God wanted it. Nehemiah saw it as an opportunity. You know what was so incredible if you go read chapter 5? Nehemiah said, let's sit down and take care of this problem. And as he took care of the problem, you know what happened? The people worked harder and the wall got built faster. So many times the things in our life we think of as distractions. Somebody knocks on your office door. Somebody calls you. You're busy. You're focused. You're wanting to go. Somebody stops by the house. Somebody stops you in the grocery store and you've got a place to be, man. You've got a job to do. And you see it as a distraction. No. I pray we would have eyes to see opportunity. Because what happens when we begin to see opportunity is our original vision, our original dream, all of a sudden gets bigger. Because it wasn't just about building a wall now. Now it was about touching people's lives, changing people. He didn't leave Susa and go 800 miles to touch people. That was God's plan. He was just being obedient in the process. See, church, what I want you to hear is it's easy for good things... Good intentions, good desires to take a God-given dream and turn it into a nightmare. Most God-given dreams don't just end. They expand. They give birth to something new. And that only happens when we have eyes to see and ears to hear the Holy Spirit. It doesn't take much for a dream to become a nightmare if we're not careful. Some of you can say amen because you've seen that happen in your personal life. You've been a part of a church and you've seen that happen in a church's life. We have got to be prepared and sensitive and aware of the traps and the detours. But most importantly, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and recognize that He is enough. He's sufficient and He is security. When we trust in Him, we can do like Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. Through Christ. Do you know why he says that? That's an answer to him saying, here's why I'm content. I'm content 
because I can do all things through Christ. What's it mean? God's in charge. Let me ask you this as I close. What if the greatest thing, what if the greatest thing that you will ever do in your life for Christ is never known or seen by anyone? Never recognized, never acknowledged. You were obedient. God got glory, but no one ever saw it. No one ever said anything. No one ever recognized you. Let me ask you this. If that was true, if you knew that to be true, could you be content with that? And even more importantly, would you give it the same passion and motivation and desire and drive as you would if everybody was going to find out about it? Because if not then it's probably not God's dream. It's probably yours. And that's a recipe for a nightmare. God has a dream for you. God has a vision for you. But it only comes when we trust completely in Him. Let's pray.